Uh, children, you're dismissed to Children's Church if you uh, haven't gone up already. Um, we're going to be in Romans 8, 18 through 25 this morning, but before, I want to just share a little, little burden uh, on my heart and then spring something on you uh, suddenly. Uh, burden that uh, God has so much for us as a church to make disciples and Some of us can tend to make our own um, Christian experience about just coming to church services, and that's good, and that's part of it, but it's, it's, it's not complete. Dawson Trotman, founder of the Navigators in the 1940s, said we were, we were born to, to reproduce. There's a man named Robert Coleman here. He's in his 90s. He studied in depth the Gospels and Jesus' way of making disciples that the apostles learned years later. And he boiled it down in 1963 into a simple little book called The Master Plan of Evangelism. It's about 110 pages or so, about nine chapters. Um, he boiled it down as he studied the Gospels and Jesus' way of making disciples and the several principles that Jesus instilled by that power of the Spirit into his disciples. Uh, Robert Coleman was the dean of the Billy Graham International School of Evangelism and the director of the Billy Graham Institute of Evangelism. Billy Graham uh, wrote uh, the foreword for the book he wrote, uh, The Master Plan of Evangelism. And Billy Graham said if he had to do his ministry over, he would have followed the principles that Coleman lays out in his study from the Gospels here for making disciples instead of the, the mass crusades that had a certain uh, powerful effect because he felt that would have a longer lasting effect and continuation. And Jesus told his disciples in the early stage in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 19, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And there encapsulated in that little phrase are three key attributes of a disciple of Jesus. The first is, follow me, right? The disciple of Jesus follows Jesus. We receive Jesus, and he leads us in obedience to him. And then the second part, and I will make you. The disciples changed by Jesus. Jesus transforms us into his glory, we'll see in Romans 8, as we respond to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's job is to form Jesus in us. So follow me, and I will make you. And then he says, fishers of men. So we're staying for a purpose, for a mission, a kingdom purpose, a kingdom mission. We seek his kingdom first, and all these other things of life are added to it. And we join him to make this more disciples, who make more disciples, who make more disciples. And this third attribute, fishers of men, is a, it's a commissioning, a, a call to action. It speaks to us at the practical level, the hands level here. Use our abilities and what God's placed us in our hands to serve Jesus. So you, you put all three attributes here in that little phrase together, and you see a disciple is someone who's, who's following Christ, who's being changed by Christ, and he's committed to the mission of Christ. That's a simple way to define a disciple of Jesus. And this is what, of course, churches need to be seeking to make. Because Colossians 1.27 and Paul's ministry in the New Testament was always about 
presenting people as complete, mature in Christ. Colossians 1.28. And when that's the goal, that changes everything. And so I ordered um, several of these short, simple books. If you're not a book reader, this one will not scare you. Um, it's small, it's simple to read, it's easy, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and uh, I ordered several of the simple books to help us understand that you and I are God's plan A for making disciples through the Spirit. And there is no plan B. No one else is going to do this for us. A lot of times you look at the world of the first disciples and say, wow, that was, that's so different than ours. But more and more missiologists, those who study the world and those who study Jesus' mission and how it relates to the world, are saying that the world of the Roman Empire is closer to our world today than it seems it ever has been. So actually a lot like ours. It's filled with skeptics and idolatry, a lot of other gods. But also... The same thing is true in Jesus' time and the Apostles' time. The world is filled with a lot of hurting people. Sinners. Who God's already at work in their hearts. To hear and learn and be transformed. I ordered a few of these books. They're going to arrive on Thursday. Or you can get them on Christian book distributors or Kindle. I think it's like $3.99 on Kindle. On your own. But here's my invitation that I'm going to spring on you today. I want to invite those who want to grow in this and are serious about this and join Jesus' mission in a more intentional way to come and see. I'm springing this on you, but I'm doing it intentionally. I'm going to be here in the auditorium at 2 p.m. The auditorium set up in a big comfortable circle. And I want to pray for an awakening, a seedbed, a future harvest for 2021. I'm tired of Corona, you are too. I'm also tired of limiting God. And I think God wants to pull us back like a slingshot here. And I think He wants to launch us and have us sort through what really matters and launch us into a kingdom work and harvest. So I'm going to be there in the auditorium. Whoever joins me, I'd love to have you join me. I'd love to have everybody join me, but I know that probably won't happen. 2 p.m. in the auditorium today, and I'm just going to give a little quick introduction into the study, what this is all about, Master Plan of Evangelism, studying Jesus' ways of making disciples. We'll look at, uh, I'll do a, a, a 15 minutes of teaching, a quick look at Jesus' method, and then pray. And then I want you to go home and reflect. That's it. I don't want anybody dragged in. I just want hearts that want to beat for what the Father's heart beats for. And so, that's your invitation, and I'm not going to make you feel guilty if you're not there. But I feel that God's probably calling more people and more people and more people into this task of making disciples what we've been commissioned for. And I want to do this intentionally and press into it here for 2021. 2020 was hard. 2021, we don't have any guarantees of relief, as I said at the beginning of this year. But what doesn't stop is Jesus' work and Jesus' mission. And if these times are like a slingshot being drawn back, I want to be ready for you to be released. And I want to be active in the things that we can do now. 
And so there's your invitation here. Let's pray together for a seedbed of harvest. Because I really believe Knox County is ripe and open for the gospel. If our eyes are seeing what Jesus is seeing. It's an invitation to you this morning. Ethan's going to come and he's going to read our text. Romans 8, 18 through 25. I'll try to be a short message this morning. It's a glorious text. It's all about glory. It's amazing. It's a vista here of eternity. In Romans 8, you have creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. What it all look like. And here it is in these few verses. So would you please join me this morning and look at Romans 8, 18-25. It says, just as Pastor Abraham was just saying, it's a powerful passage talking about how our suffering today does not compare to what we're going to have in glory. So let's read this together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creation was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who had subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of the corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruit of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. We are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that what we see not, then do we have patience, then do we with patience wait for it. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you have given us hope. Thank you, Father, that here and now and today is not the end of the story. Thank you, Father, that we look to um, to a day when when all of our pain and suffering will go away. Thank you for the day of the hope of when we will be like you, for we'll see you as you are, and that the the pain and suffering of sin will be taken away, and we will be perfect like you are. Father, thank you so much that you use the pain and suffering that we face as a fire to purify us and to remove the dross of sin from our lives. Father, I pray that we'll be pressed, we'll press into it, Father, and we will uh, not press against it and try to run away from it and run away from the things that you're trying to teach us in the midst of our pain. But Father, may we, as a congregation, as your people, remain humble underneath your hand. Father, may we humble ourselves in your hand. And Father, to be able to Find your strength and your grace in the midst of our suffering and our pain. Father, thank you that you have a purpose and a plan in this to make us more like Christ. Father, may we press into that and may we be coming more and more like the people that you have designed us to be. Looking forward to that with the joy of what you are doing in our lives. Father, help us 
to be able to have grasses in our lives so that we can be healthy and being healed so that we can extend a helping hand to the broken people around us. Father, um, just before I came up here, I got a text from Nate Poland, Father Man, that I've been reaching out to, and he's in the hospital with an infection. Father, I pray that you'll bring healing to his body, but Father, more so a healing to his soul. Father, I pray that this suffering that he's going through will be something that will drive him to you, that he will put aside his addictions and the things that are holding him away from you, and that he will surrender his life to you and his girlfriend as well, Nicole. Father, I pray that for others as well, that you will help us to be that light to the people that are broken around us, and may they come to you for healing. Father, thank you so much. Thank you for Pastor Jamie. I pray that you'll strengthen him and encourage him, and may you speak mightily through him, and may you open our ears to hear, and not just be hearers of the word, but doers. And may our lives be transformed through the power of your word today. In the name of Christ, amen. Thank you, Ethan. Pray for Ethan as hell. Yeah. Concussion as a child and reconcussed a few years ago, banging heads with Jace uh, at a youth group game. It's really affected him, and he's been to a lot of a lot of medical sessions and treatments, and he's still having a lot of trouble. Um, he's hindered from doing uh, all he wants to do for the Lord. Um, and after this service, a few men in the church are going to pray upstairs with them, and in simple faith, ask God to heal him, if that aligns with His will, and. Um, so I want you to, to be in prayer for Ethan. Um, I've watched Ethan mature and grow through this in tremendous ways. And it'd probably be hard for him to see that being in the middle of it. But watching as an outsider, he's been an example to me of how to suffer for Jesus. Well, I want to bring your attention to Romans 8, 18 through 25. A couple summers ago, my brother, I have five brothers, four brothers, excuse me. We are five boys. I hope I don't have five. I might hopefully never find that out. Um, but my brother Josh got married in Colorado. He married a girl who grew up in Colorado. And you know Colorado, the mountains, the Rocky Mountains. And driving in the mountains, you, have a, you could have a hill on either side of the road. And then you see a sign up ahead for a view on the... Of, the, of a vista, the, the panorama landscape here that enables you to pull over and look out. And so as you're driving along this road up a mountain in kind of a corkscrew fashion, or if it's on the side of the mountain, a switchback fashion, think of like Cadillac Mountain in our area, or more locally, Mount Batty, right? Here you've got trees on the other side of you until you get to the top. And when you get to the top, what do you see? You see where you came from. You see the, the view all around. Uh, you, 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 you can see before you had only rocks or trees on the driver and passenger side of your window. But now you can see everything. Now you can see sometimes in a 360 degree view. You can see the road that you started at that you wondered where it was going to lead to. You have a much better view. And Romans 8, 18 through 25 is like that view. From this point, we can see in astonishing clarity the whole plan, the whole goal, the big picture of salvation for all of God's creation. And once you glimpse 
glimpse this view, you never forget it. From the top of this hill, you can see forever. And what I think Paul wants us to see from this passage, building on what we saw in Romans 8, 1 through 17, that we are people of the Spirit, we are in Christ. That's just what it is. We are supernatural people. We have God Himself dwelling in us and empowering us. Romans 8, 18 through 25 tells us this, that there is a certain hope that gives us power in each moment to continue in Jesus. There is a certain power that gives us uh, hope in each moment to continue in Jesus. And that power is the hope, a certain specific hope. The world and Disney talks about hope in a kind of I wish upon a star kind of a thing. The Bible talks about hope as a certain reality that will be a promise come true from the mouth of God himself who does not lie. And what I want us to see this morning is this certain hope that gives us power. It helps us to endure. It helps us in the hardships and suffering because verse 17 had said that the Spirit himself, he bears witness to our spirit, that we're the children of God and the children were heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And he says, this shall be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. In other words, there's an expectation. If you are a son of God, if you are a child of God, you have received the adoption, you've been grafted into God's family, received into his family, through Christ's work on the cross, through the Spirit's transformation work, through the Father's open arms, you as a child of God are God's child, are, 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 are a son of God. And as the Son of God, Jesus Christ, walked the path of suffering to receive glory, as now the enthroned risen Christ, so we also are called to not be disenfranchised from this world, to not have a very different experience than anybody else in this world as far as the difficulties that go on, but to see the suffering that we share in this world as being creatures under the decay of this world, but with an alive hope and a changed heart, we're to see that now in a bigger framework, a 360-degree view of you of returning. And so Paul wants us to understand this, that this certain hope that helps us endure, that gives us power to endure, it infinitely outweighs our struggles. It infinitely outweighs our struggles. To say that is a statement of faith, isn't it? Look what he says in verse 18. For I reckon, he means, I consider, I'm summing up again here. I, I, I'm looking at God's word, I'm looking at his promises, I'm looking at his plan, I'm looking at the whole panorama of scripture. And I'm considering, I'm coming to this conclusion that I'm standing on with both feet that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. When, the glory is used, when that word glory is used in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew language, it's the word kabod. And it has the idea of a heaviness, a weightiness. God's glory. There is a density to God. There is a, 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 a compactness, in a sense here, a gravity about God's glory. 
And Paul says, the glory that will be the glory of God that one day will be revealed in us, and I'll speak of that in a second here, is so heavy that the things we are walking through today and struggling through are light in comparison. They are not light as we're going through them. Paul is not discounting the hardships of life. Paul himself had many hardships of life. But what he is saying in comparison, one day, one day we will realize how light they were. Not because those experiences were light, but in relation to the glory that we'll experience. He's picturing it here kind of like scales. Here's God's glory. And here's the air here, lightweight of our struggles. The glory of God that will be revealed in us when we receive the fullness here of our salvation. You understand there are kind of like three aspects of salvation. There's the idea that we have been saved, right? We are saved from the penalty of sin. Then there's the present work of salvation in us. That's called our sanctification. We're being saved from the present, or excuse me, from the from the power of sin. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit as we yield to Him. And then there's this future aspect that none of us, because we're sitting right here in this world, we all share this truth here. We haven't yet received, but we will. And that's what Paul's talking about here. In fact, in chapter 13, he's going to say, wake up! Because your salvation is nearer than when you first believed. And here's what he's talking about. Glorification. The fullness of being changed into Jesus Christ. And this is being saved from the presence of sin. And its effects. And Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, they're not worthy, they're not worthy to be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed in us. And he's picturing these scales again. What is this glory that shall be revealed in us? It's glorification. It's that stage when it will be done will be fully like the sun. Well, this certain hope gives us power each moment to continue in Jesus because it infinitely outweighs our struggles. But he's going to help us understand that a little bit deeper by telling us that creation itself groans for it. Look what he says in verse 19 through 22. For the earnest expectation of the creature, the creation, waits for the manifestation, the revel- revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was made subject to vanity, futility, emptiness, purpose, not fulfilling its purpose. Not willingly, but by reason of him who is subjected to the same in hope. Because the creature itself, creation itself, also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption, of deadly decay, into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. What he's saying is this. He's personifying creation, the realm of creation here. And he's saying creation has an earnest expectation. In other words, it eagerly awaits. You can think of it like this. 
It's standing on its tiptoes in apprehension. It is looking in the distance, longing to see what has been promised. It is craning its eyes and neck to see. And what is it craning its eyes and neck to see? What is creation craning its eyes and neck to see? What is it standing on its tiptoes ready for? What is it? Specifically, what is it? Look what he says. The manifestation, the revealing of the sons of God. That's the first thing it's looking for. Creation is standing on its tiptoes for when the sons of God, you and I, reach our glorified state. That's kind of weird, isn't it? It's a weird picture that Paul's giving, isn't it? It's training its eyes to see our sinless, resurrected glory of the Son of God in all of our being. That's what the inanimate, that's what the created world, creation, is longing to see you and I glorified. Why? Why? Well, remember, Genesis 3, 17 through 19, at Adam and Eve sin, man sin here, there was a curse that was pronounced upon all of creation. Creation did not meet the purpose of what God had designed it for, because man wasn't meeting the purpose of what God designed it for. What did God design it for? That's why the scripture here says, for the, script, for the creature was made subject to vanity, futility. The idea here is a purposelessness. It did not reach the ultimate purpose it was made for because of man. Because man did not reach his purpose to have dominion over it for God's glory. We failed in that. And so creation groans for that. Groans for that day to see the sons of God glorified. Why? Verse 21 tells us why. Because, because, friends, these are these are the, some of the most majestic truths in the whole Bible here. All right, it's hard to go any higher than this. All right, so get your attention glued into these verses here. Look what he says in verse 21. <clears throat> because the creature, the creation itself, also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption, deadly decay, into the glorious liberty of the children of God. What he's saying is this. Why is they standing on creation standing on the tiptoes? Because creation will be free when the sons of God are free. Creation will be delivered into the rightful rule of the glorified sons of God. Friends, heaven is not some disembodied experience here. It's a new creation. Read it in Revelation 21 and 22, right? It's a new creation. Read it in Isaiah 65. The former things are passed away. Creation will be delivered to the rightful rule of the glorified sons of God. Now look what he says. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails, labors, suffers in pain together until Right up to this moment, he's saying this is true of creation. But you know those aches and moans of creation right now? 
They're not the aches of death, though death has passed upon all creation. Do you know what that word travail is a picture of? Labor pains. Labor pains. Here I am now speaking out of inexperience. But I've been told when that baby is born, those travail and labor pains before have delivered a child. There's something that's produced. The aches and moans of creation right now are not the aches of death, but of birth pains, which means this. Something will be born. The creaking, the aching, the splitting, the destruction in this world is really pointing to what will be born one day. Something will be born. Something is coming. And what is it? It is the guaranteed glorification of the children of God into the image of Jesus. Guaranteed. There is a certain hope. So this certain hope gives us power each moment to continue in Jesus. Because it infinitely outweighs struggles if we really believe it. Creation groans for it. But also notice here, we groan for it. And next week you'll see the Spirit groans for it. We groan for it. Look what he says in the following verse. Verse 23. And not only they, creation, but ourselves also. Who is he talking about? People of the Spirit. 1 through 17. Which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves, grown inside ourselves, waiting for the adoption that is the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man sees, why does he yet hope for? Here's what he's saying. Remember mankind exchanged, Romans 1, exchanged the glory of the immortal God through idolatry. Romans 3 says we have fallen short of the glory of God through our idolatry. And Paul wants his audience, Jew and Gentile, there in Rome, who he will uh, have partner with, with him for missions to, to Spain, to identify with his fallen Adam. What's fallen Adam? Those who do not display the glory of God because we replace God with other idols in our lives. And Paul is saying here in, in, in this build-up here, this passage, Jesus is the is the is the magnitude. Of the glory of God. The second Adam, the royal king. The suffering servant. And so the event of Christ, his life, his death, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension now, has begun God's glory being vindicated. And the transformation of you and I into Christ's glory here is a foretaste of this change here is not merely a return to us going back to humanity's original image, but it's being transformed even beyond Adam before the fall. It's a metamorphosis, a transformation into Christ's greater glory. So he says, we're the first fruits of that. The change the work of God is doing in your life right now in the present through the Spirit because of Romans 8, 1 through 17, 
And you responding in the Spirit by putting sin, your desires to death, not letting sin take over your desires. The changes that Jesus is doing to make you more like His Son are like this. Imagine today, Dennis, you said it was 10 below at your house. Something like that, right? In your mind's eye, imagine June. The end of June. Warm summer breezes. Your tomatoes have been planted. And you find some cherry tomatoes and you're starting to see some tomatoes come up. Now I know June's a little early. For me, it's usually like the end of July. But just imagine a nice warm summer in perfect conditions. And you go out there and you see red tomatoes on your tomato plant. And a bunch of green ones. And a lot of other blossoms. And you go and you pick one of those cherry tomatoes. And it's firm. You pop it in your mouth and it's sweet. If you don't like tomatoes, this illustration is totally lost in the If you like tomatoes, you may, maybe can imagine this. And it's delicious. It's great. And that tomato that came off the vine early was called the what? The first fruits. Why is it called the first fruits? Well, because the first ones. Now, what does it imply? More to come. There's more to come. You're expecting to be to have tomatoes up the wazoo, right? Right? Tomatoes as much as zucchinis. I mean, you're you're expecting there to be a harvest, right? You had the first ones, and they were good. And you're like, oh, I can't wait for more when those come in, when those blossom, when those ripen, right? And that's what Paul is saying here. The Spirit's work in your own life right now. It's little pops in your mouth. little taste here of what the fullness of glorification will be like. I want you to think about this. Let's let it affect your heart, not just your head here. Uh, think about this. When has your heart been especially warmed and filled with God's glory? When have you had joy? Think about the fullness of joy that you've had in the Lord. Not a superficial happiness here, but a, but a, but a real fullness of joy. Think about those moments in life, okay? That's a little taste of the Spirit's work of transformation in your life, of what glorification in the new heavens and the new earth will be like. And it's because of this that Paul says in verse 23, that not only creation, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, we're the first taste, the cha- our change transforming lives are a taste of new creation. We are new creations, but it's a taste where it's like we're Im- imported into this world to give a taste of what the new creation is going to be like to the rest of the world here. Change lives into Jesus. Not only they, but we... Ourselves also, which are the first fruits of spirit, even we ourselves, with that change, what are we doing? We're also what? Groaning. We're groaning. We are groaning. Why? Because it's not done yet. We still sin. We still struggle. We still suffer. We still have stuff that we see going on in this world. And stuff in our own hearts, right? We groan. Why do we groan? 
Because we long for that day of finished, complete redemption. Not that Jesus' work isn't finished, but the bringing it to a close isn't finished. The glory of God. One day, Charles Wesley, brother of John Wesley, the revivalist, um, Charles Wesley wrote, wrote a lot of the hymns in our hymn book, and he was on his deathbed in the 1740s, I think, or 1760s. And on his deathbed, I mean, the guy had a mind that just could rhyme stuff, just could come up with lyrics. On his deathbed, his voice was weak, but he couldn't stop singing. His voice was so weak, he had these lyrics coming to his mind, and so he asked his physician, Dr. Whitehead, to write these lyrics down, and this is what he wrote. And you can imagine, here he is groaning. It's like, he's right here, ready to go into this glorified state over here. He's right on the edge. And he writes this. Feeling the physical that is just the results of wrong hearts, right? Because of the curse of sin, he says this. In age and feebleness extreme, who shall a sinful worm redeem? Jesus, my only hope, thou art. Strength of my failing flesh and heart. Oh, could I catch a smile from thee and drop into eternity. He's getting it. He's groaning for the already and the not yet, right? Jesus had done this. He's groaning, groaning for the not yet. Coming into eternity with his Savior. So what's the point of this passage here? The point of it is what he's going to say in verse 18. Now come back to the bookend here, verse 25. 24. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man sees, why does he yet hope for but if we hope for that which we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. What he's saying is this. It's this hope that Paul lays out, standing on the top of the mountain, looking out into forever. It's in this hope that we're saved. But it's not hope if we've already seen it right now, and it's active. It's already happened, and it's not hope, Right? It's not hope because you're still waiting for it. It's certain it's going to happen. It's a promise that we will be fulfilled, but it hasn't happened yet to us because we're still here. But if we hope for what we do not see, because it's hope, we can't see it with our glorified eyes yet. We just have to believe it. Then we eagerly wait for it with perseverance, is what he's saying. It hasn't happened yet. The arrival soon. It's not yet. But we have been kissed with the Spirit. That's the first verse. And it's called hope because it's a certain reality that's been promised but not fully received. But one day. So therefore, I'll go all the way back to the beginning verse, verse 18. So therefore, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. There is a certain hope that gives us power each moment to continue in Jesus. And all Paul is saying here in Romans 8 is what he already said in Romans 5, 1 through 11. So let me read those verses to you. 
This has been an explanation of what he said in Romans 5, 1-11. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein ye stand and rejoice in hope of what? Of the glory of God. And not only so, but this enables us, this empowers us, not only so, but we glory in tribulations, afflictions, or troubles also, knowing that tribulation works patience and endurance. And patience, experience, and experience, hope. Now, your sufferings just magnify a hope, right? If you're in a desert, and you're super thirsty, and you know a thousand feet away is a well... You got hope. You got hope. But the reason you're thirsty is because you got hope. Right? There's there's suffering that plays into this here. And it's going to empower you to walk those thousand feet, to endure here, to get to that oasis here of water. Verse 5. And hope makes not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given to us. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man some will even dare to die. But God demonstrates, commends, demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom we have now received the atonement. Reconciliation. Romans 8 tells us from the top of this hill you can see into eternity. From the top of this hill you can see forever. And that's what we're to fix our minds on. That's what we're to That's what we're to consider. Friends, this is only true of Jesus' children, isn't it? Which gives us a responsibility to share the hope that is within us. And it also reminds us of what Paul said here in Romans 5. That the wrath of God, the anger of God, for the rebellion of mankind against him is upon them. But Jesus has made the way. Jesus has made the way. So it empowers our witness, and it empowers our day-to-day living by setting our eyes on eternity. I don't know what 2021 is going to have for you. I'm not even talking about Corona. Some of you may lose a spouse this year. Some of you may lose a child. Some of you may lose a parent. We don't have any guarantees, do we? But we do know this. In the hardships, the struggles of life, God has opened a window in eternity and says, 
gaze on my glory. The glory that you will fully experience in you will far outweigh what may befall you. We love to sing Amazing Grace. There is a verse in it that maybe we haven't thought a lot about. Through many what? Dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. What's the rest of it say? I want you to look that up and see the rest of it. Because this tells you why you need grace. Amazing grace. And what the grace has delivered to you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for taking our hand and walking us up to the top of the mountain. Showing us the beauty of what one day will be revealed. Creation is waiting with eager anticipation to see our glorification because it means a new creation. Lord, it's called hope because we haven't yet fully experienced it. So we look with eyes of faith. And we thank you that the one who gave his life while we were still sinners is resurrected, ascended far above all princes and powers and authorities. He holds us in his arms and he will walk us in a completeness of journey to his glory infused in us. Thank you for your promise. In Jesus' name we pray. Would you stand as we sing this morning? All I have is Christ.
Revelation and also read out of Romans chapter 8 talked about this morning. I want to read the end of the story, just a couple of verses in Revelation chapter 19. John says, he says, and after this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out. It was crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. It's not what the world is crying out right now, is it? But that's the end of the story. And he goes on and um, in a few more verses in verse 6. He says, again, And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns. Would you join me as we sing, Is He Worthy?
there is someone worthy to open the scroll and to see the names of those who have been redeemed. Lord, that the Lion of Judah came, broke the chains of our slavery, Lord, and offered us salvation through his death, his burial, and resurrection, Lord. And we thank you this morning that one day, Lord, it's not just what feels like a small group of Christians, Lord. It will be every every piece of living creation, like peeling thunder, will proclaim your name, that you are almighty, Lord. We thank you this morning that we know the end of the story. We thank you, Lord, that we can have perfect, confident hope in that end and in our Savior, Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in the name of our Savior. Amen. You may be seated.